Behold, Fantastical Truth has returned. Just as before, I am the publisher of Lorehaven, a Stephen Burnett, and thank you for rejoining our quest. And I'm Zachary Russell, but call me Zach, and this is episode seven. How does Jesus define and redeem his gift of imagination? With Brian Gadawa, who will be interviewing in just a moment. Now, this week's episode is an epic one. We're just going to kick back, solve every challenge relating to the simple topic of God's gift of human imagination. Won't take very long. Easy. And then we'll be off for tea, right? (laughs) Wrong. But fortunately, we do have help from our guest, Brian Gadawa. He writes biblical fiction with a supernatural edge, lots of supernatural edge, and nonfiction. So a very unique voice and uniquely qualified to explore the topic of what does Jesus change about this, this thing we call imagination. So we're going to set that up just a little bit there. Uh, we're going to actually take an example from a, a series that most of our listeners would be familiar with, Star Trek. Star Trek, the next generation specifically. Uh, there is a the very, best one. Yeah, I would say it's my favorite one, but the best one might be Deep Space Nine. Jury's out on uh, Star Trek Picard, but it seems to be the characters of next generation with new characters. Uh, but the, the aesthetic is a little bit closer to DS9. Anyway. Star Trek TNG, The Next Generation, had an episode called simply Darmok. Maybe you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, you may have seen the memes, especially if you have geeky friends on social media. Yeah, if you're my friend, you've seen this. This is one of my favorite episodes. Well, the the idea of the episode is that if you're familiar with Star Trek, the whole conceit is is that uh, there's a starship, a starship Enterprise. It's the future. Earth is at peace, and so they have plenty of resources just to send uh, starships around exploring the galaxy and uh, seeking out new life with new civilizations. In this case, uh, most of the time when you meet a civilization, they talk in plain, ordinary American or uh, (laughs) uh, mid-Atlantic English, sometimes even British English. It's wonderful how those universal translators work. The idea is that the translator gives you basically an English translation of what the aliens have been saying. But in this episode, they encounter a civilization who, although they speak in English with the translator, they speak entirely in words that just don't make any sense. It's, it's names and apparently places, and everything they say has something to do with some kind of a story. And uh, there's a famous quote from um, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, who's trapped on a planet with this alien named Darmok, and all the alien can say... No, it's another... Uh, He's not named Darmok. No, that's right. No, that's yeah. right. No, the Darmok is the reference to the story that this alien is telling. And he just constantly is comparing their situation to Darmok Angelad at Tanagra. So the only English words there are and and at. And then finally Picard gets it. He's like, oh, you're speaking in metaphor. Everything you say is a callback to some kind of story, something in your history or mythology that you know about. Everything. So this is a civilization that's built on the idea of imagination. Any idea that they have, they're connecting to an imaginative story. The idea works on two levels. So what about calculus? I mean, well, that's that's the thing is that okay, that's where the story breaks down. Is you can't go too far because this civilization somehow, despite being entirely speaking in metaphors and uh, backstory and mythology, has uh, managed to come up with some kind of math. And I think they're even a warp civilization. Otherwise, the the starship uh, Enterprise wouldn't be talking to them. But this story has this idea that works on two levels. It reflects the idea and itself provides a story that doubly communicates the idea that an abstract idea can be communicated through imagination itself, through pictures, through stories. 
that's uh, that's what we're going to be exploring here. Uh, Zach has another example, though. You see this in uh, in storytelling. Yeah. So one of my favorite movies, Stephen, is Inception by Christopher Nolan, and you know it's really a movie about movies or a movie about movie making or storytelling. If you haven't seen the film, it is about it's a heist movie. Okay, so it's about people trying to. It was the the same narrative as a group of guys trying to steal something, except instead of trying to take something away, they're trying to put something into someone's mind. And so they're trying to put this idea in a character's mind to get him to do something they want him to do, but so that he'll have the idea that, oh, this was my idea all along. And they do this through something they call dream sharing where they connect all these wires together and one person who's able to control their dreams brings everyone into that dream. And then within there, they, they create another dream and then another dream. And it's like a dream within a dream. And there is, there are so many metaphors in this movie to the process of storytelling and all the elements that make for a really convincing movie, but just how a story itself is what gives us ideas like a a really well-written story or well-produced movie doesn't have to tell you, here's the moral of the story. The story itself portrays that idea. And so you walk away from these movies with all these ideas that you think are your own. And one of the most, you know, one of the classic examples of this is Bambi. Uh, and I, oh, the Disney movie, yes, animated 1940s, okay. which they're making it into a, a real life one, which I because can't, reasons can't imagine how traumatizing that's going to be to this generation. Of Do you kids, think but... they're going to use real deer <laughs> or will they be <gasps> right. CGI? Well, yeah, either way. And after Bambi first aired in theaters, people stopped hunting as much. And there, there's some significant drop in hunting licenses or, or whatever that happened. And the movie never said, oh, you should you should not hunt deer, but everyone came away with that as, as their idea. But, uh, you know, this happens on so many ways and so many levels. And sometimes you can, you can tell what message a movie or a book is trying to sell you. And those are the not as well-written ones as what we're talking about. Well, it's also, uh, something that happens, uh, even when it comes to election seasons and we're in one right now in the United States, uh, particularly for president of the United States, as we record this, and you will find in not only popular culture storytelling, but in political campaigns, which seem to often, at least in how they are received, uh, use imagination as a shortcut for transmitting their ideas. They use particular words or feelings or appeals to emotion as uh, almost a cheat code. Uh, not as much rationality there in a lot of ways, especially at the popular level. They do seem to separate to divide rational appeal from imaginative appeal. And it, it can kind of sneak through your rational mind and plant that idea almost as if into your subconscious and make you think, oh, you came up with that. Often they're resonating then with an experience you have or uh, an imaginative concept that you already have as a person. Our big question here that we're going to explore in this interview with Brian Gadawa is, is this biblical for Christians? Aren't we supposed to be people of the book? We have a faith that is built on the words of a book. Christians believe that this is the revealed word of God, the inerrant written word of God. God didn't send us a movie. He didn't send us a uh, fantasy novel. Uh, he didn't send us a TV show. He sent us a book with words in it. So 
don't we value words? And then don't we also, shouldn't we as Christians also view the idea of images or imagination with something like suspicion or at least neutrality, especially because there's a lot of points in the Bible where we get direct orders not to worship graven images. And in church history, right up to the present, we've got examples of people, otherwise solid Christians included, using images for, let's just come right out and say it, idolatry. They worship images. They take images and sometimes literally bow down to them, and other times just use them in association with ideas and practices that have nothing to do with the way that God has revealed for us to worship him in the Bible. Well, a great story to answer that, I guess, question, Stephen, is when the prophet Nathan confronted David about his sin. You know, he could have just come out and said, hey, here's the Ten Commandments and here's all the ones you broke. But instead, he told him a story, uh, the story of the rich man taking away the ewe lamb from the poor man. And David immediately jumped up out of his seat and said, that guy's got to you know, be punished. And Nathan says, you are that man. So Nathan very cleverly got David to emotionally agree with God's law before he intellectually agreed with it. And I think that's what a well-written story does. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and read something else. This is a poem by Emily Dickinson. I don't know a lot of poetry, but the, the, this one is one that's always stuck in my mind. And it goes like this. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight. The truth superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. So what do you think, Stephen, about that poem connected with everything else we talked about? I, of course, immediately think of many, many ideas that C.S. Lewis communicated. This would not be a fantastical truth podcast without at least an <laughs> oblique reference to Master Lewis. Oh, it's uh, it's uh, mandatory with joy. But in this case, I think of his famous quote about sneaking past watchful dragons. You know, that, that's speaking more from the perspective of a creator, you know, someone who's trying to communicate truth. But I, I love here where she is talking about how the truth can get in edgewise mm -hmm. when we're not noticing. And actually, Zach, why did you bait me there? I almost, I don't want to interpret that poem and turn it into prose <laughs> because she's doing it here too, right. through the venue of poetry with this, this particular way of communication, she is able to get in that idea that truth can get in edgewise when you're not looking, but the venue itself helps to, not the venue, the, um, the, the, the medium helps to communicate that even better. Uh, it's almost like trying to read the words of a song without the music. Uh, right. it, it sounds that better stuck in your as head. it is originally. So what did you say a minute ago? It's I like a self-promoting, it's like a self-proving form or something. Right. Yeah. 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 So no, I think this is great. No, I'm glad you found that. So. All right. Well, we're going to move into our interview. So let's welcome Brian Gadawa to the Fantastical Truth Podcast. Okay. So we are so happy to welcome Brian Gadawa to our interview today. Brian is an award-winning Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote To End All Wars. He is a controversial movie and culture blogger at Gadawa.com. He is internationally known teacher on faith, worldviews, and storytelling. He has books like Hollywood Worldviews and Word Pictures, Knowing God Through Story and Imagination. 
He's also an Amazon bestselling author of biblical fiction. Uh, You can look up his series Chronicles of the Nephilim. And his new book is called Jezebel, Harlot, Queen of Israel. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Great to be here. Oh, I have one correction. Go for it. And maybe I sent you an old bio, but uh, that no, book Word Pictures. Oh yeah, oh, okay. okay. That book Word Pictures is actually relevant for today because we're talking about everything that's in that book. Mm-hmm. It has been re-released with a new title called "The, the Imagination of God," and uh, so if people are looking for that, they won't find Word Pictures. They'll have to look for "The Imagination of God." And ah. in it, I talk about everything we're going to talk about. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. That one's on me because I actually own uh, the older edition of that then. And so uh, I included it in there because I knew it was enough. very relevant to today's discussion matter. Fair okay. Enough. Great to know about that alternate title. Um, what's going on today, Brian? What, what did we interrupt uh, in order to, to pick you up for uh, Fantastical Truth today? Well, I don't know if I, I can talk about too many projects because they tend to be secretive okay. that I'm working on. But uh, right now I'm, I'm working on my next novel. I'm always working on a new novel. Can't, can't, I can't uh, tell people what it's about yet, but it's in the, vein, the next Chronicles of the Watchers, which sort of follows the same similar storyline that's been going on through all my Chronicles series, which has to do with this supernatural side of, of the Bible and trying to picture what 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 might it look like, you know, a, a fictional sort of speculative uh, uh, view of what the unseen realm may have looked like during these Bible stories that we're very familiar with. So as you mentioned before, that Jezebel was the most recent, and that was based on the Jezebel story in the Bible. And then I'm always working on some some new possible movie project, but those take forever. And sometimes uh, we don't like to talk about them because they start and stop so frequently that it's just uh, we'll talk about it when it happens. <laughs> sure, sure. No, that makes sense. And uh, really glad that you're out there doing this work with uh, with you know fan- the fantastical truth type stuff. It's completely in uh, the wheelhouse of uh, of this podcast and the Lorehaven mission. Yeah. Uh, in in the intro to this interview, uh, I said that this uh, this would be an easy topic uh, talking about how uh, Jesus uh, defines the the um, the concept of imagination in the Bible. Of course. That's not an easy topic. It's a huge topic. We could have a whole podcast series about just this topic. So since we've got you here, uh, we're, we're still going to just try to try to cover the basics. But that means that if you, the listener, thought uh, they, they left something out, they should have said something about XYZ Newsflash, you're absolutely correct. We did leave something out. Let's just go ahead and plan on leaving something out, even as we're going over the basics. Real quick, then uh, we'll just stop by. Uh, the little podcast feature I like to call the concession stand. It's like, this is our concession to you, the listener. There's some stuff we can't get into, such as graven images. We can't really get into the idea of what you do with the picture of Jesus in movies or coloring pages or whatever. Another time, perhaps, we'll get into that. Concession number two, we can't address every historical instance of when Christians did the wrong thing with their imaginations or when they idolized images, that is icons and all that sort of thing. And finally, concession number three, we've got to allow for different personalities when we talk about this topic. God has gifted some of his people with what some people call the the left brain gifts. I don't know if that's actually limited to that physical hemisphere of the brain, but if we use it as a metaphor, those folks may be skilled in engineering or programming, or maybe even theologians who are skilled in translating or exegeting uh, the words of scripture in their original languages. And he's gifted others. Uh, I might put myself among them uh, with more right brain gifts, like, you know, the creative gifts, pictures and art and music and such. 
The side effect of either one of those gifts distributed to his people is that we have a hard time understanding the other type of person or even wrongly judging them. So we just want to make sure that we realize that you know, the church is made up of many different types of people with many different types of gifts. If you want to know more about that stuff, then please, listeners, ask us for that sequel to this podcast. Even better, of course, share this podcast with your friends and allies, get them to sign up and uh, ask us for that discussion. So, Brian, thanks for sitting through that. I thought it'd be great to pick your brain as you have thought through these issues of imagination and biblical truth to sort our discussion according to the Bible's big story, big true story itself. That's a rather classic paradigm, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So if you're good with that, now we can start with creation. Yeah, I am. But actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to just real briefly just lay out for, for your audience sort of my background so they know where I'm coming from. Because this Go is for an, it. this will, of course, be an, uh, an issue that can create some controversy and people will be wondering, you know, is he a heretic? Because I've gotten that accusation at times, even though I'm an Orthodox Reformed right. Christian. My, my background is that I've always been an artist, but I've also always been a philosopher. I'm actually one of those bipolar uh, people where I love both the right brain and the left brain. And, but in and a good way. Yeah, in a good well, in a good way, right. but it has its downsides. It really mm, does. There's mm-hmm. a lot of no, no one. No, no one doesn't know what box to put you in. Wait a minute. Is this, this is Brian Gadawa, the the <laughs> theologian philosopher, or Brian Gadawa, the, the the crazy novelist that goes on about Nephilim and things. Yeah, exactly. And and you know when you have when you kind of are in both of those worlds, you you struggle sometimes being too rational or sometimes being too cr- crazy in imagination. And and but but I love that. That's what life is, and that's the fun of life, and that's the danger of life. Is we're right. trying we're supposed to try to find the balance or find a proper approach and, and um, dealing with who we are. But, you know, so I've been an artist for, for many years. But the thing is, is early on in my Christian walk, I got a love for Christian apologetics. And that also led to philosophy as well, which, which was a personal interest of mine. But so I've always, from that time on, I've just, I've spent, I've done it all, man. I mean, no. back in my day, it was, you know, Josh McDowell, Walter Martin. I read all the guys, Norm Geisler. And, and of course, nowadays it's Josh's son, uh, Sean, Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell, who, yeah. yeah good guy, who yeah. I consider a friend, by the way. And, and he loves my stuff too, by the way. Yeah. So I got into that stuff. I think what happened was I became the sort of secular sacred dichotomy that I decry. I was raised on Francis Schaeffer's writings, and he was a Christian theologian who really helped me to integrate my artistic and imaginative side with my Christianity, which is something a lot of Christians ha- have sometimes have a hard time doing. But at the same time, I, I struggled with it nevertheless. So I, I had it mentally. I, you know, I understood, hey, you know, all of life glorifies God, not just Bible reading, prayer, and and fellowship, but actually washing the dishes, cleaning the house, doing the mundane things of life. You can glorify God doing them. That's something that's uh, I think the Reformation really helped helped us to understand, but nevertheless, I still tended to compartmentalize, and it's something that I, you know we have to work on throughout our whole lives. But and the compartmentalization was kind of like this: it's like in my artistic life, in my day job, I was a graphic designer and all that, so I, I could understand the creative nature and imagination. But then on my spiritual side, when I pursued my faith, I tended to be more intellectualized. I tend to be more rational um, because of this heavy emphasis on apologetics, which helped, of course, helped me to understand Orthodox Christian doctrine very well and, and make it important in my life. And I'm, I'm 
so grateful that, that I've had that. But I think what happened over the years happened to me also has happened to evangelicalism in general. And that is it's become this sort of overly emphasized rational means. And, and I'm not speaking as a charismatic. I'm, I'm speaking as, as someone who, who realizes that we can become so obsessed with doctrine, so obsessed with rationality and logic and all this, that we tend to import that into our faith and our understanding of God. And he becomes a philosophy rather than a person. And so these are the things I struggled with. And, um, but I, you know, I had a, a, a time where I started to realize, much like C.S. Lewis, which was he had the same the same experience where he had this uh, debate with Anscombe, um, I think it's G.E. Anscombe, whatever, um, and it was a Roman Catholic uh, philosopher, and she demolished his arguments for the existence of God, and it shuddered him so much. Not because she's an unbeliever, she was just saying, "Well, those are bad arguments," you know, and and he he came to that realization of the limits of reason. Not that reason is bad. So I'm not a postmodernist. I'm not someone who says, oh, chuck reason and all that. But you come to this point where you realize, oh, reason is good. It's part of how we glorify God. I can quote you all the Bible verses. Come let us reason, says the Lord. You know, uh, Jesus is the Logos, you know, that kind of thing. But then also you start to realize the limits of reason, the limits of rationality. And here all along, I had an understanding of the arts but I, when I started to try to integrate the imagination into my theology as well, it changed me, and it also made things more dangerous because it is a it's a dangerous world to try to balance. Oh, it these is absolutely things, you know. But I, you know, on the one hand, you know, we tend to see imagination as ambiguous, and it often is, and and there's more freedom in there, you know. There's more variety, and rationality is more strict and logical, and all this. But the truth is, God Himself, and this is where I, I started to to realize that I am deluded if I think God has revealed Himself in perfect Cartesian categories of reason that we can know with absolute certainty, and that I had to I had to, have to actually realize that there's this element of what faith is is not absolute certainty. You you can't rationally prove some things and. How does that integrate with with faith and such? And and that was my journey that led me to write the book uh, that is the imagination of God. And it was what it was was an exploration of how God uses the imagination in His Word, which I treasured, I treasure still as the you know, the Word of God, and it is the supreme revelation of who God is. I judge everything against that in terms of who God is. Amen. But it's not this book that. De- that will tell me all truths about everything, like what's good art or what have you. But that journey helped me to explore those imaginative images that I already embraced in my artistic life, but then understood how to integrate them into my theology. And that's the difficulty part. That's the dangerous part. But the bottom line is, you know, when people say, well, that's dangerous to do that. I'm like, oh yeah, I won't, I won't deny that. But the truth is, is if God does it, (laughs) <laughs> if the apostle Paul, do, if the writers of the Bible do it, well, then why isn't it good enough for us? If well, they exactly. use these dangerous images and all this, you know, whatever they call dangerous, that's kind of where I am today. So as we're talking about this imagination, just so that people understand, you know, I love God is logos and God is not illogical. He's not irrational. And I, 
I, do, I believe that we are on the cusp of a, the most dangerous transition in our society ever with, um, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this with the, the advent of the postmodern control of the universities that's now bled into the millennial generation and the generation and the Zoomers. And now there's a rejection of rationality. <laughs> and that is going to cause more chaos and destruction than ever before yeah. if, if it takes hold. So that I'm coming from the perspective of that, yet at the same time, let's dive in and talk about the beautiful, beautiful imagery and imagination that God uses to communicate truth that is not rationally divisible. If that makes sense. Amen. It does, and we are so fellow travelers in this regard. Uh, Zach's going to take us to that uh, to that uh, doctrine of creation in a moment, and just kind of offer some early thoughts uh, that you can bounce off of when we talk about how imagination is rationally derived from what the Bible says. I, I noticed yeah. you know, there, there's two ways we can approach this: either in in formal education about this topic, or just as living beings doing our thing. The one way, of course, especially you know, as we're children, is you can, as a parent or guardian or something, you introduce a child as part of just normal life, as well as you know, training to learn to love Jesus, you introduce them to a good story. And then you just sit back and just watch them grow. And just the story itself argues, in a sense, for its own existence, for its own purpose. Uh, Absolutely. They, and, and we have to do that, you know, but seeing as how, you know, we're not a story podcast, we're, we're more, you know, nonfiction about fiction type podcast. What we are doing here is what you've just done. You have rationally argued for the fact that, you know, rational exposition cannot explain everything and it cannot take that shortcut to our hearts yeah. that, that we talked, we actually talked about before your interview where we're talking about how the, the story in a sense kind of hacks your brain in the best possible way by yeah. planting a symbol in there or speaking in terms of metaphor and imagery and using what is untrue to explore the truth. And that is what stories do. That's what Jesus did when he told his parables. And that of course is the very reason that we believe God reveals his work in the universe, his amazing epic account of salvation and redemption in the form of a huge epic story that includes all these other genres, letters, nonfiction, sermons. It's not one big theological index of ideas. It's a narrative through the Old and New Testaments. Amen. And you know, one of the reasons why I came to this strong difference of understanding is actually because of my evangelical upbringing, which basically one of the primary emphasis of evangelicalism is that the Bible is your absolute sort of reference point for truths, at least about God. I think some Christians take it too far and think that talks about science and stuff, but but nevertheless, I, so I have this residue of wanting to always find biblical proof for everything, you know, um, at least in principle, obviously it's not going to talk about everything. So what happened was all my study in systematic theology and philosophy, when I had to face the fact that, wait a minute, wait a minute, the Bible is not a systematic theology. There are some rational discourses, but it's not a systematic theology. Now, it doesn't make them wrong, but it is a lot of stories. And so therefore I had to say, well, if God chooses stories, and we're talking, I, I did a, a real quick survey uh, myself going through the whole, all the biblical text. And I came to the conclusion that roughly about 20 to 30% is propositional discourse and about 70 to 80% is actually images, poetry, 
propositional discourse, meaning that the, the, this is explaining the idea going from a logical progression, point A, point B, yes. you know, l- l- like the Apostle Paul would do in Romans, yes. for example. He's following the narrative of Scripture, but he's drawing out the stages of Christ's redemption and how that works applying to the nations and who chooses whom and, and all of that. You know, that that's a propositional Right, uh, there are propositions, right there. and right. it, you know, it's bottom line is is against for those again for those who are listening who might be worried. This is a both and thing here, not an exactly. either or, and that's the primary. But I do believe that we, that at least evangelicalism, not the Catholics, and not certain other like Orthodox, but but evangelicals definitely, and I come from that tradition, so that's where I speak from. But there is a tendency to elevate the rational over the imagination. And I think that if you look at the scriptures, you're going to have to see that if God uses imagination more than rational discourse, he uses both. But just from the perspective of just looking at the numbers, it's like, okay, it doesn't mean I have to be exactly the same percentage in my life, but it has to at least wake us up from this overemphasis on rationality in terms of recognizing, appreciating, and starting to integrate the imagination at least more than we have before. That's sort of my calling to the churches is to wake up and realize and embrace this element. I'm not saying a throw out reason. I'm not saying to switch sides. I'm just saying embrace it more so because if God does it, then so should we. Right. And, yeah, well, and, and that's a reason. You've given a reason, yes. a rationality to do that. So you're speaking in terms of reason. Yeah. I talk about all that in my book too. I, I lay out right. the fact that, look, you know, I believe in reason. I believe in logic. I know this book is words using logic and all that. And it, it leads to that both and not either or. Yeah. When I think about the creation, you know, we are created in God's image and he's a creator. And I love how J.R.R. Tolkien, in his his short essay on fairy stories, talks about we are sub-creators with God. So yeah. he created us to be creators. And just look at how amazing his creation is. Like One of the things I love to do with my kids is I find these weird videos of things they find under the ocean. So they find these bizarre like disco jellyfish, you know, that like not only <laughs> glow, but they like flash and they have all these weird things. And they're finding these at the bottom of the ocean where humans for millennia have never been able to go. And I I always say to my kids, you know, God has been waiting until 2019, 2020 for us to find this. Like he created this so long ago. And now he's like, Hey, you found that jellyfish. All right. And so (laughs) a little divine Easter egg. I mean, cause just how crazy, how crazy is that? Like, why do we need that? But yes. And I, I think that's, you know, it's always the answer when I hear, people talk about fiction. Well, why do we need fiction? It's like, well, why do we need these crazy jellyfish? It's like, (laughs) it's God loves creativity. He loves to create new things. And he's given us that ability as part of our image. Like we are, we are made in his image, but, but Brian, you said something a minute ago. I want to go back to about the fact that there's a certain amount of mystery. Rationality can only take us so far in a walk with God, Uh, but you know, cause we're not just rational beings. We're, we're emotional beings. And, and we're, you know, lots of other things, but a number of years ago, my wife and I met with this, this gentleman that had come to our house and we were, got on this long discussion about the Trinity because this person did not believe that God is a Trinity. Mm-hmm. And so we went through scriptures about it. We're like, here's why we, we believe as Christians that God is a Trinity. And at some point, you know, we just couldn't ex- explain it, I, I guess, to his satisfaction or, or, or whatever. And then he sat back and said, well, so what? 
you know, I still can't make sense of this. And my wife said, look, part of this is just mysterious. And his, his reply was, well, I want all my mysteries solved. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always thought about, I mean, that was like 15 years ago, but I've always thought about that, that as Christians, we can't have that mindset that every mystery about God will be solved. It occurs to me, it occurs to me that I want all my mysteries to be solved could be interpreted as a statement of idolatry. I was just going to say you, you could translate that into I want yes. to be God because yeah. it, it is only God to whom all mysteries are known. Absolute self-deification. Absolutely. And besides no human, not even Christians, no human being lives like that. Take any atheist and there's lots of stuff that he just doesn't know, but it's there and evolution's true and all this. It's like as a human being, you have to give up this need to have your absolute certain knowledge of all things. It's just absurd if you think about it, you know? But yeah. I, I understand the drive for that. It comes from a good place. It comes it from the place of, because I have this, you know, I'm always curious about what skepticism says about the Bible, because I'm always wondering, well, is there some other argument? Is there some, something I don't know? I and mean, then when I hear things that, that I have questions about, I'm like, I want to know the answers. I want to know the answers to everything I hear. And so I tend to read a lot and tend to look a lot for the answers. So it comes from a good place. It's just, you have to recognize, like you said, Stephen, it's like, okay, it's self-deification. It's idolatry. If you think that I have to know it or it's not true. Like that's like the supreme arrogance, you know? It is. It, it is, however, a distortion of, as you said, an originally good idea, because yeah. as, we're, as we're continuing to, you know, just think about the idea that God has created people. The original version of that idea is that we're little finite reflections of the creator. That's yeah. not just, it's, it's not, not just some doctrine that is in there in the Bible. The idea of what was later termed the Imago Dei, the idea that humans are made in the image of God. This is how God created Adam and Eve, and this is how all of their children ended up. That's a rational and imaginative wild statement is that for whatever reason, and we think we know the reason, but you know that would be a whole podcast all on <laughs> its own. God wants little images of himself because we reflect back his glory. And that's a big idea for God is magnifying his glory and, and filling it throughout all of his creation, which I, I would understand is that's why we have this gift of imagination. God is the creator. And as Zach said earlier, there's this idea that humans are sub-creators or stewards of creation. We, and, we, you know what? The, that word image is the same word that's used of, of idols where he says, you know, you make mm -hmm. no image. And it's interesting because the very same process in the ancient Near East that they would create the image of the God and then they would have the entering of the breath ceremony where they would call down the God to breathe his life into the image. They didn't, you know, it wasn't literal, but it was their notion that then that image could then represent the God on the earth with his breath in it. Is it interesting? It's exactly like it is in the, in the Old Testament where God says he gives his breath into us. We are like his images on the earth, his representatives here. Well, I but think that's a, that's oh, a good transition to our next section, which is how does imagination and creativity relate to the fall of man? How does that distort God's gift of creativity and imagination? Well, well we've yeah. already had we have already had one example yeah. where uh, the the distortion of the the imagination or or even the idea of trying to figure things out. Part of the call to steward the earth ends up in the pursuit of I would I would say science or technology or research. You know, trying to discover those mysteries, but. The sense of delight, if we had not fallen, would lead into there's always new mysteries to be discovered and some things we will never know. Yeah. But the idolatrous distortion of that after the fall, after Adam and Eve's sin becomes, 
I'm like God. I should be able to know everything. And if I don't, I'm not going to believe it. All right, go ahead, Brian, please. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but also, you know, for me, one of my favorite uh, examples or stories of this is the bronze serpent in, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, uh, and the yeah. Hushton. And it, it, really, it really exemplifies this creation fall thing, but it also actually <laughs> points to redemption as well. But, you know, so the idea is, is that when the Israelites were in the desert and they were griping and complaining and, and God got ticked off and he sent a bunch of uh, fiery serpents to bite them and many of them were dying and and they're all, they cried out to God. And so God had Moses create, actually, I think it was Aaron, but Moses had Aaron uh, create a, st- a staff like a bronze pole and then had the snake a representation of the s- snake. Some people, some scholars argue that that's a, uh, similar to the sympathetic magic that came from Egypt. That is, you create this object, it uh, represents the certain powers. But God said that you create that staff with that, that image. It's an artistic image that represents the evil that they're experiencing or the suffering that they're experiencing, right? So he says, put that up there and anyone who looks at it will be cured. And they looked upon it and they were cured. And that's, wow, that's fantastic. Well, but then if you read further on the Bible, you see, I think it's like even as long as 400 years later, they kept that piece of artwork that that symbolized God's redemption. Mm -hmm. They kept it, put it in the temple and worshiped it. And and of course, it got to the point, and we read about this in the Book of Kings. It gets to the point where God is so ticked off, you know, that He sends His prophets to condemn them. And ultimately, I think it's uh, Josiah get ultimately gets rid of it. But the point was, was God expressed His hatred for the fact that they used this symbolic thing of redemption, turned it into an an idol, and this shows we take a good thing the arts or whatever, your imagination, we take a good thing and we Mm -hmm. often twist it because of our sinful nature. But then it does look forward to what we'll be talking about again, which is we know that Christ likens himself to that uh, Nehushtan, that that serpent pole. If you look upon him with faith, you'll be healed from your sin, so to speak. And so there's that beautiful, God gives us something, we ruin it, and then he redeems it. And, And it's all focused on a piece of imagination, an imaginative piece of artwork. To me, that says it all. So Brian, I take from that you don't have a cross up in your house and you think we should get rid of crosses from churches today. <laughs> did I hear you correctly? He's an iconoclast. No, no absolutely not. I, 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 did, I did have an iconoclastic uh, period in my life. I do tend to be an iconoclast. but I think, Wouldn't it be healthy, Brian, to go through at least a little iconoclasm, not just to reenact church history in, in yeah. micro, but just to make sure that, I mean, we don't want sure. to commit that same kind of error because sure. sin is so serious. And if, for example, I mean, absolutely. briefly, if, if someone did have an issue where they felt that the image of a cross or... Uh, you know, a statue of Jesus or something like if they legitimately felt for themselves that they were going to be tempted to worship that thing, yeah. then, okay, you know, maybe you ought not smash it with a hammer, but maybe, maybe also just not ought not have it around because sin is very serious and it does corrupt everything that people do. A- and yet I don't see anything in scripture in the old Testament where God says people are so corrupt that anything they make is also going to be corrupt. You get even as mm-hmm. early in Genesis before the flood, some familiar territory for you there. 
where we're talking about a lost world of music and tools and presumably farming and technology. And, you know, some of our you know, Christian fantasy allies have really enjoyed camping out in that time period, uh, yourself <laughs> included, to speculate yeah. on what was that world like, that lost world before the flood, you know, all that culture wiped out. It was a good start. But it was yep. a false start because people couldn't sustain it. The, the society then became too terrible. God had to wipe it out and then eventually create a covenant people, old covenant Israel, and then gave them multiple instructions about uh, the, the tabernacle. And you get the material in Exodus about uh, Bezalel, in whom is this very spirit of God, first mention of the Holy Spirit, filling someone, and then all these amazing templates and and encouragements for imaginative work you know mm. images of of plants and and heavenly creatures and all this stuff so much symbolism so much amazing stuff and yet as you said all all of that stuff even could could be could be harnessed for idolatry because of that sin stain in the human soul yeah and i agree with you we, you know we we should uh be ref self reflective you know and and i do this in my book hollywood worldviews which is another book i've written hollywood worldviews for sale on amazon uh, a little bit of self promo there Charging. Um, <laughs> but there is so much of value in many movies in some television shows and stuff yes there's a lot of bad godless stuff out there but it's not all bad and even then sometimes it's a mixture of good and bad there's nothing perfectly holy in this world and what christians have had have had a history of doing is they recognize where something's bad and then they throw the baby out with the bathwater and in fact that was the whole premise of why i wrote hollywood worldviews was because now i don't think it's as bad now as it was you know 15 20 years ago when i first wrote the first edition of that because i think christians do appreciate media more and they're able to discern but at the time I had come from this experience in, in the church cultures where it just seems to be either or. Again, there's like two kinds of Christians in the church when it comes to movies and television, and it was the cultural anorexics or the cultural gluttons. You know, and the anorexics were those who say, well, there's too much sex and violence, so I don't watch any television or any movies. And, you know, and then there's the other side that says, hey, look, there's not that much and we're free in Christ and we have to be mature, but I can watch anything because nothing's going to affect me, you know? And so you've got those two extremes. And I tried to educate by saying, look, we've gone too far in some of these extremes. Here's where they are. I write about, you know, the Bible's R-rated, okay, but that doesn't justify pornography. There's understanding story structure helps you understand how they actually communicate worldviews in movies, but that doesn't mean you you, you should throw out a movie just because you disagree with its worldview because you can gain something even from those with who you disagree. This was the danger I talked about in the beginning of the podcast. This is what I meant by danger. It's like, yeah, yeah, reality is dangerous. You have to you have to try to to you have to be discerning, and you this, these these simplistic scenarios of you either embrace it all or you throw it all out is very common, and they're both wrong. and And that's why I, I so much value what you guys are doing. That's great, Brian. You know, I, I teased you earlier about getting rid of crosses, but I mean, I have heard that sentiment from people. I heard a story of a pastor that had planted a church. He didn't have a cross up yet, or I don't know if he was planning to or not. And this uh, lady asked him, like, how can you have a church and not a cross? And his response was, well, because of that, we're not going to put one up now. <laughs> and it's just like, 
I mean, it's like, but that's kind of like both extremes at once, that's, right? That's, that's a yeah. bit counter, counter, counter yeah. cultural there. That's yeah. Too many, that's too many counters. Right. There's some churches I won't name that, that say we're not going to put a cross because it makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> and I, I'm like, well, that, that's, so that, that's biblical, actually. You've gone from the cultural fundamentalist edge of things to the you know post-evangelical fundamentalist. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And just, um, Brian, is that a new one? Post-evangelical fundamentalist? I think I'm going to use that. <laughs> In, oh, in a we should chair too. because yeah, bec- because they yeah, are I, I fundamentalists. Think, they yeah, are. it is it is kind of it's that's probably a different for a kind of fact focused podcast here. But please, Zach. Continue. Oh yeah. So the uh, you know so related to whether you should put a cross in the church or not. There's a debate among a lot of churches of should we put artwork up? Should we put? Yeah. Should we commission artwork? Should we have our congregants create artwork and put it up? And you know most of the time you see this, it's the the safe kind of stuff like the Thomas Kincaid paintings, which, okay. He, yeah. And you know what? I just want to say he Thomas gets a Kincaid lot of, uh, he gets a lot of flack, but I actually really like his paintings, but some of his older paintings are fine. If yeah. you see them, it's rather fascinating to note the contrast, but you oh, know, I've been just, uh, I've been to Rick Warren's church and they have an art gallery um, outside their auditorium. And I remember going in there thinking, Oh, this will be, this will be really cool to see the artwork. And again, in my mind, I'm thinking Thomas Kincaid. Well, some of their artwork is is honestly a little weird. It's <laughs> it's not what you'd expect. It it kind of made me uncomfortable. And so, but the more I looked at it and the more I read the little cards underneath, I was blown away by the artwork people had created. And I thought, yeah, you know, being uncomfortable with something is not a very good metric. I think this is an excellent point to bring up this issue of we're still on the sin issue, the sinful issue. And I think it's valuable to say, okay, look, what you're what you're addressing here is the issue of the need for art to accurately reflect the fallen side, fallen aspect of human existence, right? Right. Which, so which that, by the way, Thomas Kincaid was quoted. This is, a, this is a heavy paraphrase. And if I find the source, I'll put it in the show notes. But I believe at least the the ethos that he was going for while he was still making his mass-produced art was uh, he, he wanted to show a world without sin. Well, mm. I'm okay with that. But in the world, if we can put it in quotes there, yeah. of many of his mass-produced paintings, th- this was a world in which sin never existed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, I, I believe in a future world without sin, but right. that's after we go through the fire of the whole sin shindig. Yeah. Yeah, but we're not, yeah, we're not in that. And the point is, is I actually, I would argue, shouldn't our Christian art reflect that we find grace in the midst of this suffering? That's, that's the biggest expression of what the Bible is actually saying. Yes, we have the hope of that ultimate sinlessness, but in terms of the present experience that we have, you know, the other side is the, the you know, sometimes fundamentalists or whatever kinds of Christians that will just, you know, it's the, their mentality is just everything's got to be veggie tales or little house on the prairie uh, because, oh, <laughs> you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't cast your eyes upon any evil things. And this still stuff is out there that I do believe there's less of it than there was say 20 years ago, but that mentality still is out there. And, and I dress a lot of it in my books, all of them, actually Hollywood worldviews, imagination of God. And the idea notion here is, is that look again, if the Bible does this, who are you to say we shouldn't? If the Bible shows the depraved side of our existence, the suffering, the the dark side in context of an ultimate redemption, well, then our art should also reflect that. Our imagination should reflect that. We should have those moments of uncomfortableness, of even sometimes maybe shock. You know, I I like to point out the fact that God had shock artists with some of his prophets. You know, he had Isaiah walk around for several years naked. 
All right. And the point was, was to make a prophetic point that this is what Israel is like. You know, it's disgusting. He had Hosea, you know, marry a, a prostitute. Right. And I mean, like, wow, that's pretty much shocking. And the point was to show this is how you have become to me, oh, Israel. And so the value of showing the uncomfortable, the value of dealing with that wretchedness side of us in our art, in our imagination, it's just as important as the redemption. And my, my main statement is always, you know, the power of the redemption that you're communicating is only as effective as the accuracy with which you've depicted uh, the sin or the, what, you've been, what you're being redeemed from. If you don't portray an accurate, sinful reality, then your redemption is just a, a bumper slogan that doesn't connect to anybody's suffering. Oh, amen. That's a, that's a perfect transition because one of the most dramatic and shocking examples, just like you were saying, in Scripture is God's institution of the Passover in yeah. Exodus. In, in that first big redemption story of a called out people, you get this idea. And, and actually, as we record this, we're coming up on that season in the liturgical calendar where Christians across the world celebrate this, where God institutes you know, the killing of animals and then, you know, some rather unusual behavior uh, with the blood of these creatures and, you know, what you can and can't eat of the creature, uh, which, of course, after the Exodus bridges into this very complicated sacrificial system. You know, yeah, bulls for one type of sin, goats for another type of sin, sheep mm -hmm. and lambs and all, all of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then varying degrees based on your, your affordability and all of that throughout the book of Leviticus and beyond and, and all of that designed to stick in inception style. We were talking earlier about the movie inception, where you know, you put a symbol in someone's brain in order to make them think something over time. Hmm. In this case, God himself does that with the idea that if you sin, blood must be shed. If you sin, blood must be shed. If you sin over and over, of course, an, an, an idea repeated from Genesis three, where you have the first killing of an animal to cover someone who has sinned, which leads us of course, to that big event in the gospel story where we go from sin has corrupted everything, starting with the human heart, going out into the things humans do, including our imagination. And although now imagination can still be scary for Christians, I want to set you off on this one with Jesus, with his death and resurrection, what has changed? That's the big idea here is we, okay, we've yeah. got a pivotal moment from creation and fall to redemption and then glorification. What changes? Answer, Jesus, I'm going to set you off. <laughs> well, how, how, how does Jesus change our vision of a God's gift of imagination? The answer is Jesus. Well, the answer the, is yeah, yeah. <laughs> but how? Jesus. No, look, yeah. hey, this one of my one of the verses I talk about is Colossians one. Uh, I can't remember one fifteen something where it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that word for image is icon. And the idea here is that the incarnation, Jesus Himself, is literally the ultimate equality of both word and image. In Christ, he is both word and image equally. This is why uh, my argument is I'm not saying we should make imagination more, more important than reason or what have you, but they should be equally ultimate because in Christ, he is that literal that that image, that icon, which is the art, which is the you know the the the, the visual, the imagination element, our hum, human existence, right? But he is God incarnate. He is Word and image, uh, equally unified. And so that is literally my theological sort of foundation 
uh, that I try to argue in my books is my, what will you call an aesthetic, which is sort of my philosophy of beauty. What do I base, you know, my approach on my understanding of the arts of imagination of all these things? Well, I rooted in Christ because he is that ultimate equality of both. So that's beautiful to me. It's both beautiful and logical in many ways. That's a great point. What I, th- I feel like the fall has done to our image as creators is it sort of split us. You know, we talked about rationality being at war with imagination and that, that is something I very much experienced in my own life, Brian, you you were trained as a graphic designer. You said, Mm -hmm. I went to, when I signed up to go to college, they ask you, okay, what do you want as your major? And I, I picked creative writing. Like (laughs) I wanted to be a writer and I was not going to a liberal arts school. I was going to a large state school that's very engineering and business focused. Hmm. And so then when I started classes, I'm like, I better be an engineering major. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get paid to be a creative writer. So I, I always joke, you know, I, uh, a lot of people say, well, I went into engineering, I chickened out, but I, I went into creative writing and chickened out <laughs> and uh, got an engineering degree. But all throughout my time getting trained in engineering, I love the, like, I love doing presentations because then I could do something really creative and interesting. And like, I built a whole website with Adobe flash, like, you know, 20 years ago Cool. and, and made everything really fun and interactive and interesting. And it just, it really started to hit me how God has made us for both that. And I like how you said, Jesus is the word and the image, like he is that expressible part of God. That's the word. And he's the, the, the kind of the inexpressible part, the, the, the more emotional or the, the non-rational part. I don't know how you'd say that. The existential maybe. Mm, yeah. I mean, would that be a, well, yeah. I, I would say the creative part because it, yeah. it's, yeah. he never stops being wrong. I'm going to stop being rational here. And now I'm going to go over here. I'm going to be emotional. It right. is all one in God where, yeah. where in us, the reflection of God is fractured in God, the source of all of these, the, he is the unified whole. And the, even the idea of the Trinity we were talking about earlier is that Jesus is the son of God. And we cannot exactly identify, you know, every single resolution to that mystery, but father, son, and spirit are three persons, one God, you know, and that, yeah. that our minds being so limited and, and so fractured, we, we can't even begin to imagine how that works. And of course, people from competing religions just throw it all out on that basis as well as others. But Jesus coming you know, from God as God to complete the mission of God planned in eternity past is not only both icon and logos, word and image, but he, he, you know, as to show God, but he also completes his mission of obedience, a life of perfect obedience. And he dies to take the hit for God's wrath against the sin of his people and then comes back to life, which changes everything, which begins to bring us his people who repent and, and confess him and become more like him. We, we get put back together. We're gradually begin to be less right. broken. And that means that we can also yeah. recover that purpose of his gifts, including imagination, whose purpose is to glorify God by stewarding his image, by, by reflecting him in the world. Right. And that, you know, that dilemma I felt of, should I choose a creative major or a, a more rational major? I felt like the reason I bring that up is I felt, you know, to use a fancy word, bifurcated, like, like I was being split mm. in half and I had to choose my left brain or my right brain. Like, how am I going to make a living? And I started to realize going through that whole process. Well, you know, we, we really need both. Like you can't yeah. have, 
you can't design like, um, so, so I, I love, you know, Apple. I'm an Apple fanboy. Steven's a Android boy or whatever. And I, I love the motto of Apple of we're at the intersection of liberal arts and engineering. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what I've always tried to go for is that we, we need both hemispheres of our brain, but even yeah. beyond that, we need the whole body of Christ. We need people that are very systematic theology oriented. Yeah. And then we need people that are very, I'm just going to strum on my guitar and we're going to draw near to God somehow mystically. It's like, you know, b- both those guys like seem totally foreign to the other, but we need both the worship leader and the, you know, the, the engineer, I guess you could say, or the theologian. The advice to make it practical is if, if you find yourself in e- either of those camps, you know, if you find yourself, I'm more of an artistic, imaginative person. I just don't like reading many books. I don't like, you know, what, you know, philosophy bores me, whatever. Um, uh, or say you're the other, you're just this, you know, very engineering mindset person. And, you know, you study systematic theologies, whatever camp you're in, just consider branching out and saying, look, I may be missing. I mean, I actually make this argument to people. I believe that to to whatever extent you're not balanced in those two areas is the extent to which you are missing God. Not you still know Him. You know what I'm saying? You're you're not understanding God f- as fully as you could. That's what I mean. And and so if you're more of an artistic person, then you know what? Just break out of your bubble. Consider looking into some stuff that's a little alien to you and see if you can learn from it. I'm not saying you should become something you're not, but you should seek to try to learn from that other side. So if you're more of a the intellectual type who reads all your theologies and stuff, look into look into some art. Look into you know, maybe have someone, another Christian who who knows it better, maybe ask them to help you to understand art more or imagination more, whether it's watching some movies or going to a museum even, you know what I mean? Just, it's all about, um, you know, getting outside of your bubble. And, and that's how you can have a, a, I think a more fuller picture of who God is. Whatever extent you're suppressing or negating, or even just, you know, downplaying God's rationality or God's imaginative side in his word, to that extent, you are misunderstanding God. It's that serious. This isn't just a, in other words, I'm like, you know, when I get out there, I'm like, I'm trying to tell people, look, people, I'm not just, this isn't just an apologetic for art and arts and like, hey, we should appreciate art more. You know, this is good. God does it. God condones it. What I'm saying is if you don't have some of it in you, you're not understanding God fully. It's that important. Now, it doesn't mean like you mentioned this earlier, Stephen, I think, um, you know, that we can't change our personality types. So obviously there's going to be people who are more one or the other side, but whatever side you are, try to seek to break out of that bubble and understand the world a little bit through the other view. And you might learn something that can change your life. And and it happened to me too. Oh, amen. And, And that leads us back to also to the mission of Jesus, because I was mentioning that Jesus in his actions starts to bring back together the human person that has been broken. First of all, you know, cut off from God because of our sin and God as, as a holy being, perfect goodness cannot tolerate the, the presence of sin. It's just, it just goes completely against his nature. So Jesus begins to first, he brings us back to life. His people brings us back to life spiritually and then also starts to put people back together with each other. And the, the, the engine that does that is the church. 
So w when yeah. you mentioned, Brian, that you know, if you are more of an engineering type uh, or more of an artsy type, then you need to learn from the other person that, that the best context of doing that optimally is going to be the church where you, you not only go to a building or room or wherever, you know, my church is in a, uh, a small uh, a shopping center. You not only go to a building once or twice a week with uh, some people you otherwise might not have much in common with, uh, but you're also... in. Uh, in the best case scenario, you are in a an institutional community with these people, according to scripture, to not only hear the ministry of the word and worship Christ through singing and fellowship, but but you're learning from one another. You're learning from that weird guy who actually is pretty well connected to this aspect of God's nature, and then he is learning from you. And, yeah. and that's sort of what we want to do here as well. And what anyone who, who writes books or stories or anything is doing is we're, we're trying to connect, you know, in, in, again, best case scenario here to that image of God as, as the whole being who is a creative yeah. uh, being as well as being completely rational. And what's also great is that books like your nonfiction books and, and us here uh, are attempting to argue rationally on mm -hmm. behalf of the imagination as non-optional as, as mandatory as something that human beings cannot help having and conversely works of imagination can argue very well for the importance of rationality uh, a movie no matter how artsy or experimental for example is still following certain rational rules of some kind there's only so much you can uh, compromise those before then you no longer have anything that's comprehensible there's got to be some kind of rational yeah. thought there yeah. Both of them are intertwined and, and both really should, should be seen as unified. Amen. We want to move now then to, uh, to some, of the, some of the applications before maybe we touch on what imagination could be looking like in, in the future and the new heavens and new earth. You know, I guess one of my things, everyone has their things that they're more interested in. And, and one of those for me is, is temple theology and the temple. And I wrote a, a whole series called Chronicles of the Apocalypse, four books were rooted that tells the story, the true story of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. But throughout that series, I integrate my um, understanding of temple and theology and how it all integrates with the covenant. And, and this is a, another one of those examples where in a way that the temple sort of embodies everything from beginning to end, from creation to, to restoration. Because if you look at Genesis, look, I know there are different views about Genesis, but one of the, one of the theologians I really have a lot of respect for is John Walton. And he, he, Make some really good arguments for how uh, whatever you think of the creation, it's it's not a physics book, uh, but it's particularly a temple dedication ceremony, and it follows the seven days of temple dedication, and it's it's connected to the temple, and uh, or in in the case when it was may have been written, it would probably be related to the tabernacle, right? But the idea there is that if you look at the description of the tabernacle, you'll actually see, and therefore the temple as well, you'll see God having them create this incarnation of the Mosaic covenant, right? It's the incarnation of the covenant, which is root, everything is rooted, all the forgiveness, atonement, the relationship with God, all that is, is connected to that temple or the tabernacle, which is a mobile temple, right? And you'll see there's images like he has, you know, have pomegranates here and the, the bronze sea and, and the earthen altar. And if you do a study of the imagery, you'll find that the temple is actually a sort of a picture of a garden. It and is. of course, the Garden of Eden, right, is God's original temple, so to speak. So there's this temple there. And the connection is 
the temple is the incarnation of the covenant. It's covenantal notion. So even creation, whenever you read creation theology in the Old Testament, it's oftentimes it's actually, you know, like, oh, he created the stars and the moon. It's all, all always co connected to covenantal uh, passages. So for instance, you know, like uh, Psalm 78, you know, it talks about uh, when, when, when he went through the, Moses went through the sea, you know, and all that, he crushed the heads of Leviathan. And, and then it talks about how he established the boundaries of the heavens and the earth. He uses creation language because creation language is a way to express covenant because to them, the Jew, the covenant was the universe, you know, it was, it was everything. It's, it, you know, they weren't as interested in physics of dark matter. They were interested in covenants and, and their relationship with God. So they would use creation imagery to express their covenant. And then of course you get, ultimately you get the tabernacle, which is impermanent. You get the permanent uh, temple. And then in the prophets, they're looking forward, right? You get Ezekiel uh, prophesying the future temple, which is messy. Now, I know there's different interpretations, but I take that to be the messianic uh, um, promise of the body of Christ. Because in the new covenant, it says we are the temple of God. So you've got this perfect picture from creation, fall, redemption to restoration. And we are now that temple that he is rebuilding that is his kingdom that has begun. It's not finished. It's not perfect, you right. know, but the idea is that redemption, that restoration is already here in the kingdom. And we are part of that. And, and, and like Daniel's mountain, it grows slowly to fill the earth or like Jesus's parables. It's a, you know, mustard seed that grows to be the biggest thing. You know, we're in that process right now of the kingdom growing on this earth, bringing redemptive, bringing redemption to it and change to it. But we're a part of that. And that's the new temple. That's, that's the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. So, th so there's a perfect, uh, in, to me, like a perfect expression of the combination of theology and, and heady stuff with beautiful imagery, just studying the temple and the beauty of the temple and what it represents. And it actually, it's not just this abstract theological discourse it's it's about god it's about knowing god and so when i study the temple and i see him throughout that i actually get closer to god in that you know so to me that's one of the beautiful pictures in scripture that that expresses that we are a part of that redemption in the kingdom right now and and if we see ourselves as that new temple that god is building the bricks we are the bricks of that new temple right the spiritual temple of god uh wow what an honor, what, what, but also what a challenge we are to get about where, you know, it's not about like, Oh, Hey, let, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, it's like, no, it's about bringing the gospel of peace to everyone we can because we are part of that kingdom and we're building his kingdom. He, of course, his spirit is the one that does the work, but, but we, we are in that kingdom. And that's a, that's a, to me, a sort of a, a way to live life. In other words, it's not, right. I'm not just here to live my Christian life, raise my kids, do my job, maybe get do some things I really like, see the world, travel, you know, uh, be part of a church. It's like no, I'm a, I'm in this kingdom, and the kingdom it has a very specific duty and challenge, and and we are a part of that in this hostile world, and we are a part of the that that uh, you know army of priests of God to bring that that kingdom to the rest of the world. And that's what I live for. 
And what you've just done now is, again, a unified appeal to both rationality Mm -hmm. and imagination. Mm -hmm. This is rationally presented in Scripture, uh, the idea of the the big question of where is God going to dwell? Starting in Genesis, he walks in the garden. Uh, He then departs, and he only reaches out to people sporadically. And then the, the big moment, of course, you know, God coming down to the mountain to deliver the law, and then many, many generations later, one of my favorite passages in scripture is after Solomon's temple is built and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Mm-hmm. And of course it's already done that, you know, with the tabernacle and you see the, yeah. the pillar of cloud and, you know, some of, some of that, but then revelation 21, which is a description in one way or another of all the fulfillment of this great promise yeah. that yeah. God is going to dwell with man. Now that we've been put back together by the, the, the mission of Jesus, then in Revelation 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. And then it says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, with yeah. all of that imagery you've just been discussing, all of that embedded in that concept, that yes. picture coming down to earth like a bride prepared for her husband. And then the voice says that um, now the dwelling of God is with man. That's temple imagery right there. Yep. Not only that, but it is, again, a put-back-together imagery. Yeah. Uh, God is not all, just off in heaven, you know, separate from us, but now heaven and earth are one. That's actually the end of one of my favorite uh, hymns, uh, This Is My Father's World. The final verse says, Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. Beautiful. That will, in the future... You know, it's already the kingdom's already started, but in the future, after after Christ returns, you know, finally and fully, you know, many people didn't have different views on that. But whatever happens, someday God will make earth and heaven one. And this is where we come back to imagination. The gift of imagination and everything else will be redeemed. No more danger. We'll still, I mean, we can still go wild with it, but it is now 100 percent fully in the will of of God. We can't yeah. make anything up that will dishonor him. Just don't let it become a Nehushtan. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in the meantime, Stephen, we're living in that age where there's um, a curtain that's been torn in half from the top to the bottom. In the temple. In the temple. Yeah. And that, that's one of my favorite pictures is that here's this temple that this is the place where God came to meet them behind this curtain. And now the curtain is no more. It's 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 bifurcated to use that fancy word, but... That's the era that we're living in now, that the new temple is not here, the old temple is gone, but that curtain is also out of the way, and we live with the Holy Spirit you know, in our souls, in our hearts, and but we're awaiting that final day when he comes to walk with us. And so I feel like the, the life now as a Christian is that tension of knowing there used to be this temple, and then there will be a temple, but we're living in a period of no temple, but our... Our bodies are the temple, and together as the as the body of Christ, we are the temple. But it's still this, you know, it's this mystery. It's this, we're having to imagine it, and we're having to wonder what it's going to be like. And um, there's a passage in Mere Christianity where where he talks about... No, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, where he mm-hmm. talks about when... Um, uh, when Jesus come back, it's it's like the author of a play walking on the stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. so that's that's what we look forward to. But in the meantime, it it explains why life is so confusing. We can't just go talk directly to the author, although he's left us his word, his logos. So 
Brian, we uh, we are so thankful to have you on our podcast today. And uh, for our listeners, if, if you want to learn more uh, from what Brian has written, both fiction and nonfiction, you can go to his website at gadawa.com. It's G-O-D-A-W-A.com. And we'll have links to that and a lot of other things we've talked about in our show notes. And uh, Brian, thanks so much for uh, really piquing our interest and our imagination. And I look forward to your book, uh, Harlot, or I should say Jezebel. <laughs> any any last thoughts, Brian, before we sign off here? No, just thanks for having me on. And and um, yeah, I love it. It's great talking about this stuff. I, I don't always get a chance to talk at this level. So I appreciate you guys a lot. Well, Brian, we just appreciate your ministry. Uh, you're, you're one of the few people out there who are, is writing and exploring both nonfiction and fiction from that big picture of biblical worldview. We're just really grateful that you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, yeah, it's also great then to hear you talk about movies and such, you know, from that evangelical, not post-evangelical or post-evangelical fundamentalist <laughs> uh, view. Let's make up some new buzzwords uh, next time. But um, uh, the, again, the title of that latest book, Jezebel, the Harlot Queen of Israel, uh, that is that is fiction. Yep. Uh, but I understand that would be, you know, speculative biblical historical fiction. Yes. Uh, as only you can do it. Yes. Okay. That's available at Amazon then. Yes, sir. All my, all my books are exclusively on Amazon in paperback, kin, uh, ebook, and audiobook. So uh, any format you want, uh, you can check it all out there. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we will definitely link to those in the show notes as well. And again, really appreciate, you know, we've talked a lot about you know, coming together. It's just great that Jesus in his ministry, I and mean, Jesus is still fully God and fully man to this day. He didn't get split back apart after he finished his mission. The incarnation is permanent. And in a few weeks here, as we're recording this, you know, we will be celebrating not only the resurrection of Jesus, but also his ascension. And I just, I'm glad that he is reigning right now as Jesus, fully God, fully man. And he, he puts us back together too. He, he is able to connect people who love him, you know, with sometimes with crazy ideas uh, and then some not so crazy ideas, like the idea that both biblical faith, rational faith and godly imagination are not two separate things. They are put back together. Brian, once again, Godspeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was wonderful to have Brian on our podcast. And uh, to you, our listener, we want to know, how have you understood imagination in God's universe? Has this episode given you any new thoughts? Do you have any other comments about this topic? We would love to hear from you. So please send us an email to podcast at lorehaven.com or just go to our website, lorehaven.com, and we've got a way to leave a comment there. Stephen, let's let's hear from some of our listeners about what they've already written in. Oh, fantastic. Uh, new listener, Yasha M. on Twitter tweeted to uh, Lorehaven as well as our affiliate blog, Speculative Faith. And she said, quote, I just got into podcasts this past year and I'm loving this one. Keep up the excellent work, end quote. Thanks so much. Every encouragement helps, uh, particularly when you comment in a public venue like that. Uh, it's great to know that uh, other people can hear that and find fantastical truth and uh, join the Lorehaven mission uh, because of that, uh, that positive word. And we have another uh, really good comment here. This is uh, an answer to our question. How did you first discover fantastical stories, which we talked about in our last episode. And we got a story here from Jason V. He says, my introduction to fantastical stories came around age three. In my bedroom, my parents provided a little cassette player and some of those Disney read-along book and cassette tape sets. 
Little me was very fond of these and spent hours listening to the stories, looking at the colorful little books, and dutifully turning the pages when you hear the chime ring. The book and tape that I loved above all others was The Hobbit, which was adapted from the 1977 Rankin Bass animated film. And this is Jason's comment here. He prefers this immensely to Peter Jackson's uh, adaptation, which we could probably have a whole episode about that, Stephen. I will defend the thing just yeah. a little bit. I think it gets unfairly maligned. But what, anyway. Continue. Yeah. So what Jason says here is, I, I don't know if it was the exciting sound effects, voices, story, or combination of whatever, it, but it was so captivating that I memorized the whole thing and I would recite it with voices, sound effects, and all at family gatherings. He says it would be a few years before I could read The Hobbit myself, but that's probably the single tale that fired and nurtured my love of the fantastic quests, mysterious wizards, dangerous monsters, narrow escapes, secret passages, evil to be vanquished and wrongs to be righted. Even if my three-year-old brain couldn't really comprehend it all, it was seared into my brain at a very formative age. How could I not end up being hooked by stuff like this? So that's, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Jason, for sharing that story with us. Well, you can share your story as well, even though we did that uh, episode last about how you discovered fantastical fiction. Uh, obviously, we're going to still talk about that. I so we're going to make this an ongoing thing. Steve. I think we really should. Yeah. So share your story or, of course, feedback on this episode. Uh, give us your thoughts about imagination. As Zach said, go to lorehaven.com and you can click on the podcast tab and comment on this episode. Of course, you can also subscribe to Lorehaven Magazine there and get the free reviews of uh, any of the best fantastical Christian-made novels. Those are the stories we've found that put this amazing gift of imagination into practice. In fact, as we speak, as we record this episode, uh, I, as the publisher of Lorehaven, am helping to put together our next issue, which should release in spring 2020, very likely in March, the month of March. Uh, this issue, we have a cover story that explores our favorite Christian-made fantastical novels. We have excellent folks who do the reviews of newer books by Christians that are in sci-fi or fantasy or horror or paranormal other type genres. Uh, we gave them free reign to say, hey, uh, usually we supply the books that we get. This time, you go out and find your own, so long as it's a Christian author with a fantastical genre. Which ones do you like the best? And we came up with several different titles, at least 10, maybe more, uh, from across the spectrum and across the years, which includes a classic uh, novel, a supernatural thriller from the 1980s, actually. You've probably heard the name of the author, Frank E. Peretti, and the book was his first grown-up novel, and for audience of grown-ups anyway, called This Present Darkness. This is a classic uh, story, especially for Christian readers, supernatural thriller, uh, we are going to title the podcast, What If the Armies of Hell Tried to Invade Your Hometown? Uh, we will actually have, uh, for the first time, uh, Lorehaven's review chief, Austin Gunderson, and he has written an article exploring the background and the story of Peretti's first uh, grown-up novel. Uh, he's going to explore the Peretti-verse with us in that episode. Don't miss it. I just bought the book, Stephen. You did? I've never read it. Yes. And I uh, found out my wife had read it. Lucky so you. Blessed uh, you, actually. Oh, yeah. she did? Okay. Yeah, so she's she's going to reread it while I read it for the first time. Okay, so. fantastic. Uh, I don't suppose y'all will be able to read it out loud, will you? With voices? To, to each other? Yes. Or on this podcast? Uh, no, not on the podcast. That would she violate someone's copyright law. She actually has a really good voice. She has kind of a radio voice. Does she have a good demon voice? <laughs> That question sounds Bay like a trap. <laughs> yeah, she'll have to do a uh, a really really scary voice for um the character of uh, Rayfar, uh, best demon name ever, totally made up. 
from Peretti's book. Anyway, oh, I'm about to start that uh, that next episode. We can't do it yet. Austin's not here. Return with us for that episode and, of course, beyond as we on this podcast and with the magazine and with the online community, we will continue to follow the Lord who is both rational thought and amazing imagination on this eternal quest to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>